Greetings and welcome to another episode of the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast series. Podcast episodes are available on VHHA.com and on popular podcast hosting apps, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, and many others. Episodes of the podcast also air each Saturday at noon and Sunday at 10 a.m. on 100.5 FM, 92.7 FM, and 820 a.m. across Central Virginia. Please send any questions, comments, or feedback to PCFpodcast at VHHA.com. Again, that's PCFpodcast at VHHA.com. And with that, today we're thrilled to be joined by Dr. Irene Mathieu, a pediatrician with UVA Health, who is also a public health researcher, a Fulbright Fellow, and an accomplished author and poet in her own right. Today we'll chat with Dr. Mathieu about her work and her writing, but first, welcome to the program, Dr. Mathieu. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Well, we're really pleased that you could join us today. I want to start with a question inspired by personal curiosity. I see that you did your residency at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. As a former Philadelphia resident myself, I'm curious, what's your favorite Philly thing? Mm, That is a tough question. I think I would have to say a category of things, which is the restaurants. I really love the breadth and variety of restaurants in Philly, and I do miss that quite a bit. Absolutely. Do you have, I don't know if you're a meat eater or not, but if you are, do you have a favorite cheesesteak place? You know, this is one of the deep shames that I actually never got around to um, finding that perfect cheesesteak in Philly. So I do eat meat, but very sparingly. So it was not on the top list of things to do when I was there. And then I felt overwhelmed because everyone has an opinion and I didn't know who to turn to, to really know which one was the best. So I actually don't. Okay. Well, the, this this is subjective, but I will say it's also the definitive opinion because it's coming from me. Steve, <laughs> Steve's Prince of Steaks is the best steak in the city, uh, hands down, okay. bar none. Also, um, if you if you like uh, the wide variety of restaurants, which there are great restaurants in Philadelphia, if you've ever uh, been to Delac, which is an Ethiopian restaurant uh, in West Philly, it's at like 48th, I think, in Baltimore. That place is fantastic if you've never been there. I think I have been there. Yeah, it is good. Okay. Well, listen, now that... Uh, We've discussed that on to more important things. You're, as we mentioned, you're a clinician and a public health researcher. And throughout the past year and during the COVID-19 pandemic, we've been reminded of some of the legacy inequities in this nation and their implications for health access and health outcomes. As you survey the landscape, I wonder what revelations or reminders this year has served up for you. And given all that, are you optimistic, pessimistic, or realistic about what lies ahead? Well, I think for me, you know, as a pediatrician working in an outpatient setting, so I work in clinics seeing both sick and well children um, rather than in a hospital, I haven't felt as much as like a frontline provider because I'm not treating a lot of children with COVID. But what I am seeing are the downstream impacts of this pandemic on the lives of children. And that's really what keeps me up at night and worries me about the future, even once everyone is vaccinated and once we kind of are able to move past the acute phase of this pandemic. I'm seeing kids who have rapid increases in their body weight and their body mass index, kids who are suffering from depression, anxiety, from other mental health issues that have just gotten worse in the setting of the pandemic, kids who are under severe stress related to the economic stress that their families are under, who may have family members that have lost their jobs, family members they've lost to COVID, who are dealing with intense grief, and then children who are just struggling in school, both children who have known learning challenges or learning disabilities for whom the Zoom format just does not work, or kids who don't have anything like that, but who just really do struggle because kids are not 
meant to learn on Zoom. We're meant to learn in group settings, in person, in that three-dimensional, dynamic, interactive way. So I'm really, really seeing a huge burden of um, downstream effects and morbidity from this pandemic in the children that I serve. And I would say I'm realistic about the future. I think that this is going to, we're going to see the effects of this pandemic in those children's lives for years to come, probably into their adulthood and possibly into multiple generations, because we know that these types of traumas can really shape somebody's life. But I do think that there are possible ways forward if we really have a concerted effort as a society and as communities to try to address this trauma by increasing access to mental health care, making sure that when kids do go back to school, they have the resources they need to catch up, all of the kind of public health interventions we know work for some of these issues I've mentioned, then I think that we can try to ameliorate some of these negative effects that we are seeing from the pandemic. Certainly, as you mentioned, you know, when you think about inequities, this is not equitably distributed across society. I'm seeing more of this in kids who already were faced with some sort of inequity, whether they come from low-income backgrounds, whether they come from households that have experienced discrimination, households where a family member is undocumented or parents undocumented. So certainly the people who are in the most precarious situation, those children are the ones who tend to be suffering a little bit more from these effects. Great perspective, and I appreciate you sharing that. And and just on a personal note, I have an eight-year-old, and we are fortunate that we, between my wife and I, were able to assist him with with staying on track with his schoolwork. But, you know, there's that that sort of old adage about, you know, kids always wanting time off from school. And actually, it struck me recently, he actually said to my wife and I, I miss being in a classroom, uh, which was really startling Mm -hmm. to hear from him because of the way that we evidently mistakenly think about the way that that the children's minds work. But it's great, really great insight there from you. Uh, I want to shift from the macro to the micro perspective. You mentioned the impact of kids learning on Zoom and that not not necessarily being the ideal format. I wonder about your own practice. You mentioned uh, working in clinics in the outpatient setting with pediatric patients. What's your interaction with patients been like over the past year? Has, has it been uh, a shift to telehealth consults and away from in-person visits? How, how has your practice been impacted by this? So I work in two different clinical settings at UVA. I work at our main downtown clinic, which is also a, a resident training clinic um, in the Battle Building in downtown Charlottesville. And then I also work in our clinic in Orange, Virginia, which is about 45 minutes northeast and is a a more rural kind of clinic location. And in both locations, I would say initially when the pandemic hit in mid-March and everything started to shut down, we did have a decrease in, in visits overall. And we were able to shift many of our visits to telehealth and particularly those visits that don't require a lot of physical interaction. So visits for things like mental health check-ins or ADHD check-ins, those could be more easily done on telehealth. And then as things started to open up a bit more over the summer, and there was a question of children possibly going back to school, a lot of parents wanted to make sure their kids got up to date on vaccinations and got those physical exams in before the school year started. So we did start to see an uptick in in in-person visits. And now I would say it's pretty similar to before the pandemic. We have fairly high normal volumes of patients coming in person. And we do have a small number of telehealth visits, but again, reserved for those types of visits that really work on telehealth, like mental health check-ins. But I would say that's a very small minority of the visits that I see overall. Most people are actually still coming in person, albeit with some restrictions with visitors and having folks wait in the parking lot rather than crowding in the waiting room and things like that. Okay, that makes sense. 
As we alluded earlier, you completed a Fulbright Fellowship in the Dominican Republic where you pursued work focused on gender-specific issues in tuberculosis. Can you tell me about that experience and that work? Sure. So I should back up and preface by saying that when I was in college, I was part of a group that did public health work and also delivered medical care with the assistance of physicians and nurses from Virginia Commonwealth University in the Dominican Republic. And so I had been there about four or five times before I applied for the Fulbright Fellowship. And I was really interested in taking a deeper dive into issues of equity around a publicly acknowledged major public health problem, which is one of which is tuberculosis. For among countries in the Western Hemisphere, the Dominican Republic at that time had a fairly high rate of tuberculosis and most concerningly had one of the highest rates of multiple drug-resistant tuberculosis, which is a type of TB that doesn't respond to the frontline antibiotics we normally use to treat it. And I was particularly interested in the literature I'd seen from other countries that showed a huge discrepancy in the diagnosis of tuberculosis among men and women. And what wasn't clear from all of that literature is whether there was a true difference and that men tended to get TB more often or that women were being less frequently diagnosed due to either structural barriers or implicit bias of providers. And this was consistent across a number of countries in the world. So my interest kind of sprang from that. And I was able to spend about 10 months in the DR where I worked with a local clinic that received funding through some international funding streams to reduce the incidence of tuberculosis globally and just really observe and see what was going on in the clinic, how diagnoses were being made, how care was delivered, and to interview some patients. So I spent time speaking with patients who had been diagnosed with TB, just trying to understand their experiences and parse out the difference between men's experiences and women's experiences. And then Ultimately, I created a report that I was able to then give some of the officials in the Dominican Republic who were part of that that receiving on the receiving end of those um, international funds to just show them what I had what I had learned in the report. And what I found was pretty interesting. So, like many countries around the world, in the DR, women tend to be diagnosed less frequently. However, when they were being diagnosed, they were often diagnosed with what we call extrapulmonary TB, which means tuberculosis that is not in the lungs, but is in some other part of the body. And so the question is, is that because it was missed when it was in that person's lungs and it spread, or did it just never really create a serious infection in the lungs and the more serious infection was somewhere else in the body? But I did find some pretty interesting differences in men's and women's experiences. So a lot of men really expressed significant mental health effects of being diagnosed with TB because it is about nine months of treatment where people have to come in several times a week to be given their antibiotics. And a lot of young men express significant loneliness and fear and depression around this diagnosis because they felt as if they had to really exude a sort of masculine, macho kind of attitude. And that was not congruent with being sick and having to go to a clinic several times a week. And that was typically younger single men, whereas older men who were married or had a family and women of all ages tended to feel a lot more supported by their families and tended to feel less distraught. So to me, it really kind of pointed out how some of these systems like patriarchy really can have negative impacts for the people even that they're supposed to be helping or that they're supposed to be elevating, which in the case of patriarchy would be men. 
Well, that's fascinating. Thank you for that explanation. And it's interesting to hear that no matter where you are, it, it crosses borders, this attitude that exists among some men, you know, that I'm not going to the doctor unless something's fallen off. So that's, that's, really, mm-hmm. that's really fascinating. Outside the clinical realm, you're also an award-winning writer and poet who's published several books. I wonder if you could tell us about your books and the themes that you explore in your poetry and why writing is an important creative outlet for you. Sure. Well, I started writing at a very young age. I was probably two or three before I actually knew how to write when I would tell my mom she needed to write some things down because I had things to say. And as soon as I could pick up a pencil, I was writing stories and poems and just journal entries. And as I got older, I really gravitated towards poetry as my primary way to express myself, although I have done some fiction and creative nonfiction more recently. And my first book is what we call a chapbook, which is a small collection of poetry. And I published that when I was in medical school um, at Vanderbilt University. And that one is called The Galaxy of Origins. And it is really sort of a compilation of poems about my early life experiences. And I, I had to summarize a theme. I would say a lot of it is about place and thinking about places I visited, places I lived, sense of belonging or lack thereof in various places and how the places where I've lived and, and visited have start, have defined me and, and the way that I think about myself. And then my second book, which is called Orogeny, comes from a geological term. So orogeny is a term that describes when mountains are formed by two continents sort of um, bumping up against each other and crumpling to form a mountain range. And that book has a lot of geology in it. The theme is sort of organized around a central character called Pangea, who is both representative of the first continent, which is called Pangea, before the continents of the earth split apart, Mm -hmm. but also represents this sort of mother goddess kind of earth um, character who's this omniscient narrator in the background observing all of the things that humans are doing. And that book covers a lot of ground from current events that were going on, um, I would say about 2013 to 2016, during the time that I wrote it. And things that I had experienced, um, again, both personal experiences and things that were happening in the news, and just sort of imagining what this Pangea character would think of it or would think of us if she could see the state of the world at that time. And then my third book came out in 2019, and that one is called Grand Marinage. And that title refers to during enslavement when enslaved people would escape and go to less hospitable places. So in the U.S., that's places like the Great Dismal Swamp or the swamps and bayous of Louisiana, these places that are really tricky to navigate. Or in parts of Latin America and the Caribbean, those included mountains that were kind of difficult to navigate as well and not as arable land. And so people would escape and form sort of these separate freedom colonies. And when people escaped in large numbers and really just set up colonies that or villages that then never were re-enslaved and people just, you know, continued their lives in these newly formed villages. It was called Grand Marinage, which comes from the French. And that book is a little different in that I really based it on family history. And I was thinking a lot about um, my grandmother's life. My grandmother is 97 and she grew up in New Orleans. And I was thinking about the ways that class and race and gender have really intersected in the the lives of women in my family um, and how one can have privilege in one area, for example, in terms of class, but also experience oppression in another area, such as race. 
and how those can change over time and the meanings of those privileges and oppressions can change depending on what century we're in, what state we're in, where we are in the world, and how that really creates an intergenerational story. So that one is based a lot on family history and interviews with my grandmother. I think that the overarching thing that drives me in my writing is this curiosity about how the world works, why it works the way it does, why there are things that don't seem right or don't seem fair, and how we can sort of take a really hard look at those things in the mirror and then address them. And that is also, I think, similar to what drives me in medicine as well. Well, that really is an interesting perspective uh, about the fluidity of, of experience and the differences in having advantages in one area and disadvantages in another and really exploring that. Um, so that's fascinating. If you could, if people are interested, is there a website, whether it's Amazon or a personal website that you maintain where people can find out more about your writing and perhaps order your books if they're so inclined? Yes, they can find me on the internet at irenmatia.com. That's I-R-E-N-E-M-A-T-H-I-E-U.com. And that has links to all of my books and places where you can read more about them or order copies. Okay, fantastic. Well, now that we have gotten that covered, I want to ask you a few more personal questions to give people a sense of who you are beyond the work that you do. The first question is this. What is one tried and true piece of advice that has served you well in life? Hmm. Let me think about it for just a second. Well, it's a bit cliche, but I suppose the one that I probably turn to the most is just follow your instinct. Go with your gut. I think in situations where I'm not sure what to do or I don't know what the right answer to something is or there are a lot of choices before me, going with my instinct is never the wrong course of action and has helped me make some pretty major decisions in my life. That's always good advice. Go with your instincts. Uh, the next question, and this is an entirely imaginary premise, and we sort of danced around the culinary topic earlier, but in the hypothetical scenario that you could anticipate your final day on earth, what would you want your last meal to be? Oh my gosh. Probably my grandmother's gumbo made by her, although she doesn't do much cooking anymore, but that is probably the number one most comforting comfort food. So I think that's what I would have. Okay. And I, I love gumbo. Tell me what ingredients, what are the main ingredients in your grandmother's gumbo? Yeah, so she makes an okra gumbo, and she includes shrimp, chicken, andouille sausage, and often she'll include ham if it's available, sometimes blue crab as well. And then I think she puts a half smoke in there. I usually do it with just shrimp, chicken, and sausage when I do make it. And as I said, I don't eat a ton of meat, so it's not something I make all the time, but for a special occasion, I will make it. And she makes her own stock, chicken stock from the chicken and the shrimp stock from the shrimp shells. And it's a very involved process that's very much made from scratch. And so I have found that there's no cutting corners. If you want to duplicate it, you really have to follow every single step. Well, it sounds delicious. And finally, if you were stranded on a deserted island, what one book, one album, and one movie would you take with you to keep yourself company? We will spot you a copy of the religious text of your choice. So other than that, what are your three entertainment survival kit picks? Okay, you said a book, an album, and a movie? Correct. Okay, uh, for a book, I would probably pick Raina Maria Rilke's Letters to a Young Poet. I feel like that book has a lot of really great advice 
for anyone in any situation. And I read it a lot in my early 20s. And if I were alone on an island, that would probably be the book that I'd want with me. For a movie, gosh, uh, that's really tough. Um, I'm going to go with one of my recent favorite movies, just because I've been thinking about it a lot recently, which is the movie Parasite. I think it would remind me of all of the problems with society and it's also a really incredibly done and beautiful movie that would keep me I think entertained while I was alone on a desert island but also would maybe mitigate any feelings of missing larger <laughs> society <laughs> um, it's such a great film and album um I don't know let's see what album mm, I don't know maybe I'd have Buena Vista Social Club. I feel like that's a pretty classic album. Mm -hmm. It always lifts my spirit. I would probably want to dance if I were by myself on a deserted island. So I think I would want to have some good dance music. If they were from Virginia, it'd be Buena Vista Social Club. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, uh, that is going to bring us to the close of another episode of the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast. If you like what you heard, please make sure to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast and subscribe so that you know when new episodes are available. And we want to once again thank our guest, Dr. Iran Machia, with UVA Health, who is a pediatrician, for joining us today. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun.